Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damien Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Rohit Goel, Director of Macro Research at Breakout Capital. A real privilege to have you here, Rohit. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Damien. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and as always, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing... Uh, there's plenty to talk about, right? So, I mean, obviously, this has been an incredibly painful year for global financial markets as persistent dollar strength is fueling comparisons to the 1980s when, as we all know, coordinated FX intervention was necessary to stem the pain. My question for you is, do you foresee a similar outcome this time? And if not, why? Um. So, very good question. And yeah, I mean, the job dollar appreciation this year has proven to be you know a big troublesome sign uh, especially when it comes to global financial stability uh, dollar is up what 20% almost year to date and it has reached a level where historically it has always led to some financial stability crisis you know be it the ltcm crisis in the 2000s or the tequila crisis in the mid 1990s and we can see troubling signs this year as well as as you know cracks have begun to appear you know this is shown in the record high number of distressed frontier ems as well as troubles brewing in major European global banks. So given all this and the dominant role dollar plays in the global financial conditions, I think uh, it's very important to understand the drivers as to what why dollar is rallying so much, and that would ultimately feed into the policy response too. Uh, a very major narrative that we hear is that, look, Fed is hiking rates, so obviously that would lead to a dollar appreciation. Um, that's true, but we should also understand that most other economies are also raising rates. In fact, we did an analysis that if you look at the dollar sensitivity to the rate differentials, mm-hmm. right, the mis- misalignment is at record high levels. And the same can be seen when you look at other fundamental valuation metrics, like you know, real effective exchange rates that BIS and many other institutes compute very actively. So our understanding and point also has been that, look, dollar has been rallying, but it has less to do with pure play fundamental and economic channels, but the fact that it had become a safe haven play with speculative flows playing a key role in driving the rally. Obviously, markets are selling off, so dollar is uh, a comfort factor for a lot of investors. And that what sort of worries me, because it is indeed ironic that when the supposed safe haven flows, they start inducing instability in the global financial system. So this is where I sort of peg to your question that, look, it starts looking a lot like the 1980s, and Plaza Accord happened during that time. So uh, what are the chances of that happening now and does it even make sense or not? Uh, well, what I was going to say, Rohit, is, is is it's interesting that you highlight um, financial stability issues, right? Because, you know, historically we've seen, as you mentioned, in the tequila crisis and many others, you know, um, much of the morass started in, in EM, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, but, 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 you know, while EM has taken it on the chin this year, you know, it, it, it seems to be a little bit different. You know, you're, you're seeing is, FX weakness, uh, probably that much greater in, you know, G7 currencies like the yen, like the British pound, et cetera. You know, I'm curious, what, if anything, has surprised you about the pace and extent of this year's mass sell-off? And 
do you actually see any financial stability issues arising due to emerging markets? So the biggest, I mean, the given the meltdown in global assets, it was only natural that look emerging markets will be impacted too, right? So that happened. But for me, the major highlight, if I can take a relatively optimistic tone, has been sort of the unsung resilience of emerging markets. And I know it will come as a surprise in a way. But for instance, if you look at the top 10 currencies this year, seven out of top 10 have been emerging markets. If you look at the top 50 global equity markets, all top 10 performers are emerging markets. So this is not to say that emerging markets have been rallying like crazy. Obviously, this as is true with all things emerging markets, it's a very vastly heterogeneous set, right? Many EMs have been top performers, but many have been in the bottom rung too. And you can see some of the difference through the regional channels. Like CE3 obviously has been impacted a lot, right? That's the aftermath of the Russian war on Ukraine. We are seeing the Asian trifecta of China, Taiwan, Korea. They are down like 35 to 40% YTD in dollar terms. But if I strip out these EMs, and if I look at the other ones, the other bunch, the equities are down like just 6% on an average. So that shows you the wide dispersion between EMs and also highlights that some EMs are good opportunities and some are really you know messing up. And in terms of the financial stability issues that you highlight, Amongst the bigger EMs, one thing which sort of clearly stands out uh, this year for us, and this has been a long-term thesis, is China, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people have been talking about hidden debt issues in China, uh, zombie companies, leverage for a really long time. This is not a new topic, right? But this year, we have seen that that has really come to the forefront. So amongst the bigger emerging markets, I think China is one where we are seeing a lot of issues and where we believe these issues are not just cyclical, but sort of more structural. So but- so let's stay with China. I mean, you know, it's obviously the elephant in the room. Losses are deepening, certainly on the heels of this month's party Congress. I mean, mm-hmm. how should investors approach China? Well, I mean, that's definitely very uh, tricky, right? I mean, the on the positive side, look, China is massive, right? So right. Whatever asset class it is, you can always find opportunities, select opportunities that can do well, especially given how brutal the decline has been this year, right? But if I take a step back and look at it from a more macro and uh, long-term perspective, we've long believed that China, it has a lot of structural headwinds like debt, demographics, declining productivity. And all of that has been exacerbated this year by the cyclically disruptive zero-COVID policy. In terms of the macro growth numbers, as we know, you know, decade ago, it was 9 to 10%. Then a few years ago, everyone was assuming 6% is like a sacrosanct number, and it will grow at that. And that consensus estimates has now come down to around 5%. But we did some work very recently on this. And if you look at the underlying trends, we believe the growth potential is much less than that, around 2.5% or so. Um, And you can see that if you split this into the three factors. Ultimately, growth in the long term depends upon three factors, right? More workers mm-hmm. or more capital or productivity. It's a combination of these three. For the first point in China, we know working age population started declining in 2015. But the pace is only picking up steam now. And in the coming decades, it will look much worse. We did an analysis very recently for all possible countries going as far back as possible. If China were to grow at 2.5% over the next decade, right, it would be the first middle-income country in the history to do that, despite a working-age population decline. So that in itself is a very tall ask. Now the question is, but it still did it. And part of the reason is because of capital. 
China has been levering up massively in the last decade. Its total debt is 275 to 80% of GDP now. Mm-hmm. And while commentators have been arguing for a long time that, look, debt is locally held and it doesn't matter, the government will intervene and they will savor it. But this year is a perfect example of chickens coming home to roost, right? So the property sector that came to China's rescue in the last, you know, one and a half decades, that is very unlikely to contribute to growth at a similar pace. And what worries us even more on top of all this is the productivity, right? That capital helped growth, but productivity, if you look at China and what IMF has been talking about, is productivity growth fell by half to Mm. 0.7% in the last decade. Even the efficiency of capital, you know, ICOR ratio, which a lot of people track, China now needs to invest almost $8 to generate just $1 of GDP growth. And this is twice the level a decade ago and worst of any major economy. So overall, the macro picture does look a little bleak uh, to us. Of course, you can find uh, opportunities both in the equity and in the fixed income asset class. As I said, because many things are looking cheap. But from a pure play asset class and as an economy perspective, we think China would remain uh, a big uh, elephant in the room and something that more and more investors would uh, start potentially well, taking it out of their mandate. Well, Rohit, we can't talk about the macro picture without talking about the Fed, right? So, you know, my question for you is, do you think the Fed can still engineer a soft landing for the U.S. economy or has that ship already sailed? I mean, what are the risks that markets are not pricing in related to this? I mean, you know, I, I'm just curious, you know, is the is your base case now that the U.S. is going to fall into recession? And what does that mean for the rest of the world and EM in particular? No, absolutely. That's true. And uh, one uh, related anecdote, which we have been discussing, this is the first time that inflation in advanced economies has been higher than that of EMs. If you look at the number of percentage of countries with inflation greater than 5% and so on and so forth. And coincidentally, this is the first time that emerging markets are ahead of developed economies in terms of the monetary policy cycle. So Mm -hmm. that presents a very, very interesting picture. Clearly, we all know Fed was behind the curve. Now it is catching up. And now uh, it has, we can all speculate that depending upon the latest macro release, whether there'll be a dovish or a hawkish comment. But lo and behold, I think it is quite clear that look, Fed is quite intent on bringing down inflation. And it's very risky both to the macroeconomic scenarios, but also Fed's credibility to uh, stop before they can see a meaningful reversion uh, in the inflationary dynamics. Now, this is where lies the risk, because as we all know that there is a big lag, right? You tighten the monetary policy rates right now, the impact would be seen 12 to 18 months later, right? Uh, Financial markets move much strongly ahead of it, but the macroeconomic releases come with the lag. And this is where there is a potential risk that Fed would continue to uh, tighten while we are entering a recessionary uh, scenario. What saves is obviously the household and the private sector balance sheets, which are fairly strong. uh, And that can uh, help prevent a very hard uh, landing uh, in this case. But even despite that, I think our view is quite clear that in terms of the markets, what the markets are following is a very classic beer market uh, trajectory, right? So uh, they would start selling off, valuations would start coming down, uh, they would compress significantly, and then there would be intermittent pause. Uh, we did an analysis over 100 years, that was true for 75% of the bear markets, that there was a three to four month 
break and that is what we witnessed in the bear uh, in the summer this year and now we are back again and this time the down rally across asset classes is driven not by the valuation uh, compression but rather by the earnings decline and the concerns about a recession and the concerns about the corporate fundamentals and that in our view has still some room to uh, go so you know what's interesting is and you mentioned it you know how em is um for the first time ever ahead of dm in respect to tightening interest rates right to stem inflation mm -hmm. so we have to have emerging market policy rates that are well ahead of pre-pandemic levels we've got activity data reinforcing the negative impact of these restrictive conditions across a number of large emerging market economies most notably china brazil etc my question is is it too early to begin receiving in the front end of these local markets i mean which em um local jurisdictions offer the best risk reward if you're looking to perhaps put some receiver positions on no i mean uh, absolutely to and that's the advantage that look ems are such a diverse bunch people have already started talking about how brazil and chile they may start cutting dates right uh, very soon and uh, they may receive it uh, there is because the two angles a inflation if you look at brazil data inflation is coming down very very sharply right so uh, of course it's still above the target range and there's still some way to go uh, but as i mentioned that they've already uh, raised rates in a very restrictive level real rates are one of the highest if you look at the you know spot levels uh, globally and that would continue to channel through to the economy over the next you know uh, few quarters and that would have an impact on the activity too so in that sense uh, I, i would say uh, there is an impact there and that is sort of the intended impact of all these rate hikes right to uh, counter the demand side uh, channel so from from that angle th there might be uh, some uh, action there but what i would highlight is based on my sort of understanding the first step would be the communication so it's quite unlikely that you know uh, brazil starts cutting in q1 of next year or anything like that right but what would happen is that the commentary would change so now they are holding up and then they would start talking about how their growth is declining and how inflation is also looking quite sort of supportive so they might potentially look at some rate cutting measures 6 months down the line and that forward guidance is what would drive uh, some of the markets uh, in that sense rather than pure play rate cuts which uh, i agree with you is still a little bit preemptive uh, in many of these markets uh, especially when us and fed is still uh, on a hiking uh, trajectory where i sort of come at ems is more on the fundamentals like look th this is one angle where we can uh, debate sort of the carry uh advantages and where that would play out but many of these emerging markets like especially the commodity exporters and people are talking about how commodity prices have cooled off um but prices are still significantly above the fiscal break even levels right so many of these countries still generate a lot of money at a fiscal level and at a company company level that can give dividends and that can take care of you know the debt sustainability concerns for a lot of the credit Uh, out there. Well, 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 that's a great transition into my last question, Rohit. I mean, that's sustainability. We know EM public debt surged to something on the order of 70% of GDP from 55%, let's call it, in 2019. You know, rising rates, weaker currencies, blow-trend GDP. I mean, debt obligations are just getting increasingly harder to service from the perspective mm -hmm. of these frontier and emerging market economies. I wonder if you could just talk to me a bit about what we're witnessing 
across the frontier, nations such as Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Tunisia. I mean, do you foresee the start of a broader trend toward financial and political unrest across the frontier? Or is that something that, you know, we're going to manage to avoid this time around? So, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. And that's what I also wanted to sort of bring up that, you know, when we talk about emerging markets, a lot of these debt distress examples are ultimately in frontier economies, right? Yes. Not in the big EM. So, so that's a first level of differentiation that comes in. That most of, if not all of the debt distress issues are in these frontier EMs. And they are the major hotspots uh, when it comes to debt sustainability concerns. As always, there would be a differentiation. Many of these emerging markets or other frontier economies have been at the forefront of these debt sustainability concerns for a long time. What really worked for them was that the global bond markets, global financial markets were open for business, right? So they were able to issue foreign currency debt. FX was okay. And they sort of sailed through. Now, many of them are uh, hitting a breaking point. And that sort of makes sense, right? Because they are facing a perfect storm. High commodity prices, volatile external financial conditions, aftermath of the pandemic shock, which a lot of frontier economies have still not able to get over because of low vaccination rates, low tourism, and so on and so forth. So uh, our understanding is that this segment overall would remain under immense uh, scrutiny. Now, one differentiation uh, I would like to bring here, also it uh, comes down to the types of frontier economies. Some frontier economies are commodity exporters, right? Uh, so from that perspective, they have a natural support because our view is that commodities work in cycles of multiple years, not just one or two years, right? So even though commodity prices have cooled off, this is a very big supply shock. So on an average, they would settle above the pre-pandemic levels. That would help some of the frontier economies um, address their debt sustainability concerns. But it sort of a lot of them will need to go back to the drawing board and see that look, if external financial conditions tighten and dry up, can we get a house in order? And that's like the big question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Rohit, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever enduring, always committed EM enthusiasts for your time and your continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.